All right. Hey, everyone. Uh, good morning. I just want to say welcome to the exchange. So glad you guys are here this morning. Um, it's a privilege to be here with you guys and to share your word with you guys. If we haven't met you yet, my name is Josiah, and uh, we're just so glad you're here. I, I know a lot of you know this, but last week was, uh, was fun. It was our launch day. It was our opening day for our church. Um, but to be honest, I was really looking forward to this week and just kind of like moving forward with you guys and saying who wants to just build community together and reach our, and reach our city and reach our area together. So I've been looking forward to this day. You can tell my voice is pretty weak. Uh, I was sick last Saturday. After last Sunday, it was just gone Monday. And so it's a little, it's the best it's been all week. So bear with me. Sorry to listen to this. Uh, but turn to Mark chapter 1. All right, Mark chapter 1. And if you need a Bible, we want to get you one so you can follow along with us. But Mark chapter 1. So we just started the Gospel of Mark. We also, I want to share this, we have little journals. And uh, if you did not get one, they're in the back on that table and they're free. Uh, we would love for you to grab a little journal and take notes as we spend really the year in Mark. And so here's what we're doing. Um, we just started the Gospel of Mark, 16 chapters. And we want to take at least this year to just focus and study the life and ministry of Jesus. And if you are not a believer, and if you are a skeptic, know this, that this book was actually written for you. This was written to Roman skeptics. This was written to those who didn't necessarily believe in Jesus. And I want you to keep this in mind. Mark was the first gospel written, all right? So I'm going to just do some refreshers with you. Mark was the first gospel written. Back then, before this book was written, the way that Jesus' life and ministry was spread was through word of mouth. So we know there are so many people who watched Jesus, witnessed Jesus, saw him resurrect, and they started sharing this and telling people about this. And it, the cool thought is this. If you heard a rumor, you could just ask someone, hey, this happened. And imagine, like, rumors spread easily today, how much more even back then around the person of Jesus. If someone went around saying, yeah, I know Jesus, I saw him breathe fire, you'd be like, no, I was there. He didn't breathe fire, but he did walk on water, that one was cool. Like, you could actually be there to kind of refute and, and just speak against some of those things. So Mark actually writes his gospel. This is the first recorded gospel of Jesus. Mark created a new genre of writing. There's no such thing as the gospel. There's no such thing as the gospels. This is a brand new genre of writing that Mark is creating, the gospel of Jesus. And so there's so much here. And we talked about this last week, and I really want to just repeat this part again, which is, I, this, is bu this book and the gospels are so necessary. Because the, the idea is, so often we can make Jesus after our image. We can think, Jesus agrees with everything I agree with. Jesus will take the same stance I will take on these issues. And it's not so much, where does Jesus stand? It's like, how does Jesus fit into my life? How can I make him after my image? And Mark's saying, no, we're going to follow the real, true Jesus here. Like, in a vain way, it'd be like this. Let's say you wanted to go to a personal trainer, right? And you go to a personal trainer, and, and you go to him for a workout, and he looks at you and says, what do you want to do today? And you're like, I actually feel like just eating some pizza. And he's like, I was thinking the same thing. Great idea. Like, that's not going to happen, right? He's there to challenge you, to push you. And the idea of the real Jesus is this. There's no way he's always going to agree with everything you and I might think. The real Jesus will challenge us. The real Jesus will push us. It's not so much about how does he fit into my scope and how does he always agree with me, but what does he say about this? And how do I submit to what he says? Because sooner or later, you and Jesus and you and the word of God is going to disagree, but who wins? And then who wins at that point in time? And so Mark is saying this is the real Jesus. So just some reminders of Mark, and just so you can kind of be aware. Remember, Mark, his name was also John Mark. So John was his Hebrew name. Mark was his Roman name. According to Acts 12, we know that the early church would meet in his mom's house. She appeared to be maybe a wealthier woman, and the church would meet there. And so Mark, or John Mark, is the one that was actually used really early on in Acts 13 and 15 to go with Paul and Barnabas on different missionary journeys. And we shared this 
uh, last week. But if you guys remember, there's a big dispute between Paul and Barnabas. They were buds. They are friends. They were, they were sharing the gospel. But this issue happened between Mark and Paul. And then one day, Mark wanted to rejoin and go with Paul and Barnabas on their next, miss- next missionary journey. And, Mark, and Paul goes, you're not coming with us. You abandoned us. And if you guys remember, there was actually a great dispute between Paul and Barnabas over this guy, Mark. So Mark, we see him in the book of Acts. And we see later Paul write and say, Mark, he's my brother. I love this guy. Bring him to me. Like, we see it get reconciled. If you guys remember, too, just a reminder that Mark was actually Peter's disciple. Peter calls him my son in the faith. So this is, so, this is a guy that Peter spent time with that a lot, of, a lot of early church fathers from the 2nd and 3rd century wrote and said the gospel of Mark is really Peter's gospel, which is interesting. Maybe Mark was sitting under Peter, listening to the stories of Peter. So I love reading it even with that lens that maybe you kind of hear some Peterisms through Mark in this. But this is a, this is a, this is a short gospel. This is, the, this is also known as the ADD gospel. Mark is just immediately going from one topic to the next, all right? So if you're like that and you're like me and you're like, oh my gosh, what, what's next? Like, this is Mark. 41 times, Mark says, immediately, immediately. Like, he just, he doesn't know how to change the subject, so he goes, immediately. And that's how he changes the subject. And that's how he moves on. And so this is the gospel, where it actually, which is interesting, th- you might like this, you might not like this, but it focuses less on the teachings of Jesus and more on the works of Jesus. And the point Mark is trying to make is, here is Jesus, here's what he's done, you decide. This is, this is what he came to do, this is what we see him doing, this is what others said about him, this is what he said, and it's like, you decide. So it might be less on Jesus' teachings, there will be Jesus' teachings, but it's primarily focusing on the work that Jesus came to do. So I love that, it's almost like, again, you decide the ball's in your court. Now, last week, we looked at the first 11 verses, and we saw that Jesus came to be baptized by John. John's baptism was unique, he baptized Jews and Gentiles, So normally Gentiles only were baptized, but this time Jews are like, I need to get baptized. So John was actually baptizing both, and it says for the forgiveness of sins. And then Jesus comes on the scene, and Jesus gets in the same dirty, sinful water as everyone else. And I love that about Jesus. Jesus literally steps into the mess of everyone else. Something where Jews would not be in the water baptizing, that was not normal. But John was, and Jesus walks into that water and says, I'm going to take on the sin of the world. And if you remember the voice from heaven, God spoke, the Holy Spirit's there. And remember verse 11, the Father said from heaven, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. And that's where we pick off. Now look at verse 12, all right? And we'll pray. Verse 12, what's the first word? (laughs) Immediately. So right after he's baptized, immediately, the Spirit, the Spirit drove Jesus into the wilderness. And Jesus was there in the wilderness 40 days, tempted by Satan. And was with the wild beasts, and the angels ministered to him. And I know we're going to keep reading, but I've read this verse a lot, and I think that the shock value, for some reason, my mind is gone. That right after he gets baptized, he goes into the wilderness, and there's Satan, and there's some angels later on down to encourage him. And I just want us to, like, imagine this. Let it not lose its shock value. Like, look at this as a historical thing that has happened. Verse verse 14, so after the angels ministered to him, it says, Now, after John was put in prison, Jesus came to Galilee preaching the, the gospel of the kingdom of God. And saying the very first words of Jesus in this book, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. What we're going to look at today are basically two kingdoms colliding. We're going to see the kingdom of God and the kingdom of hell collide. And we're just going to talk about this idea of the kingdom today. All right, let's pray. Father, we just thank you. And uh, Lord, even though my voice might be distracting or frustrating, Lord, just speak. Let it not be about that. Let it be about you and your word. And we thank you for this gospel. We thank you for the the story of Jesus, 
of what he did, of what he said, Lord. God, we ask that everything we read here would not just be an old writing or old book, but let it be new for us. So speak it into our hearts. God, do something new in this place. We ask that we'd actually believe this, that the kingdom of God is at hand. Lord, let us believe that. If it was said 2,000 years ago, how much more today? And so we ask that we just look to you and hear from you now in your wonderful name. Amen. Um, I want you guys to think about maybe the greatest battle or greatest war scene you've ever like watched or read or been a part of or, or somehow witnessed. You know, whether it's a book, whether it was a movie, whether it was some sort of ta- tale you've heard or passed down. Like, think about the greatest battle scene you've ever seen take place. You know, for whatever reason, my, my dad was, um, my dad loves the Lord, like, pretty, like, conservative guy. But for whatever reason, when it came to, like, war movies, he's like, you're watching this. By the age of, like, 10, I think I saw every Arnold Schwarzenegger movie, and I'm, like, 10 years old. I'm like, Dad, why am I watching this? Like, he was just like, if it was a war movie, he's like, son, get over here. Um, so I, I think he just, like, he's going to make you a man, kind of a, kind of a mentality. So, you know, I remember, like, like, 11 years old watching, like, you know, Saving Private Ryan, and they're, like, on the beach. I'm like, what, uh, what? Like, Grandpa was there. I'm like, oh, no. Like, just, I remember my dad was, like, walking me through that or watching The Patriot or all these Mel Gibson movies. Like, it's just, uh, my dad loved war movies, and he would let us watch war movies. And so I have a lot of examples in my mind. So think of the greatest war movies. Think of the greatest battle scenes that you've ever seen. You know, whether it's William Wallace versus King Edward I. Right, or Leonidas versus, versus Xerxes, or Frodo versus Sauron, or Luke versus Darth, right? Like, there's so many different, like, war scenes and battle scenes that are happening. I think of, like, a real-life one, like, remember this, we wouldn't know this, but it's fun to read about, like, the Thrilla in Manila, you know, Muhammad Ali versus Joe Frazier in the Philippines, that great battle. Like, there's so many battles that have taken place, fiction and even real battles. And the, the interesting thing to me is there's literally the greatest battle happening in front of us and none of those battles or movies or things we've seen even pale in comparison to this. I mean, I really want you to think about the kingdom of God meets the kingdom of hell. The kingdom of heaven meets the kingdom of hell. The kingdom of God meets the kingdom of Satan. And I want you to understand what's really happening here. Now, let me just be really clear, by the way. It's not like the kingdom of God and the kingdom of, of hell are on equal levels. We understand that, right? It's like, look at the kingdom of God and the kingdom of hell, and they're, like, they're kind of equal, like not even close. Like the whole yin-yang thing, like a little bit of good, a little bit bad, but, you know, equal to each other. Like, no. You have God and you have Satan who's a created being of God who fell. It's not even on the same playing field, right? But I want you to think about in, in Satan's mind, this is so unique. God became a man. God became a man in the person of Jesus. This is such a unique thing for Satan. He's like, wow, God is a man? I, can now, I, I now have a vulnerability in God that I've never seen. This is an opportune time for Satan to go, let me just see what I can do. This has never happened before. It's not like he's ever had an opportunity like this. So I want you to think about this scenario. You have Jesus in the desert, in the wilderness. He's fasting. It's 40 days. He's in a human, frail body. Jesus would get tired, sleepy, hungry. Like He would experience those same things that we'd experience as humans. And Satan's going, here's my time now to attack. And there's really this battle in a sense, a spiritual thing. Even the angels show up. Between the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of hell. And I want to I actually do this, because I want us to, I, this is so unique. Mark, remember how I told you last week, Mark's gospel is just dripping with Old Testament symbols and things he's pointing back to. And when you read about the temptation of Jesus, your mind has to go back to the temptation of Adam. When you're reading about how Adam was tempted in the garden, Jesus being tempted in the wilderness, and we'll talk more about this, but there's a lot of similarities and a lot of differences. But there's some parallels to notice. And I, and I wanted to even share this more, but I'm going to show this right now. So, When Mark's gospel starts, it starts off with John the Baptist baptizing, Jesus getting baptized. It starts off with the Trinity being involved, right? The Holy Spirit comes from heaven like a dove. You have the Father speaking. You have the Son there. We have the Trinity at Jesus' baptism. 
there's not a lot of moments in scriptures where you see the Trinity. You see one God who eternally exists in three persons showing up at the same moment at the same time. You see that Jesus' baptism, we also see that creation. According to Genesis 1 and even John chapter 1, we know that there was the Father in the beginning God, and that is the Father, Son, Elohim, that's plural oneness, it's in the beginning God. And he, it says the Spirit hovered over the waters. God said, let there be light, you have his word. And according to John, that was the Trinity. You have God the Father, you have the Word, the Son, and you have the Spirit. So here's what I'm trying to point out is, from the very beginning with creation, the Trinity was involved, and now baptism's involved in a very similar dynamic. The waters, the Spirit is descending, fluttering over the waters. That was the word that Genesis used about the Spirit fluttering over the waters. It's a really interesting dynamic that John would pull your mind to, but here's why I'm sharing all this. What happened after creation? In th- what happened next? The temptation came. Right after creation happens, we see the temptation. Right after we see the baptism of Jesus, what comes next? The temptation. And so there's three thoughts I want to show with you. Like we're going to walk through this in three big ideas. And it's pretty simple. You can write these down or just take note. What we're going to look at is the anti-garden, the anti-garden, the mission, the mission of Jesus, and the kingdom. The anti-garden, the mission, and the kingdom in these four little verses. All right. So the anti-garden. And here, don't get lost in this. This is so profound to me. I love this. I'm calling it the anti-garden because... It, I'm referring to the wilderness, the desert. Adam was placed in a garden. Jesus was placed in the desert, the anti-garden. And I want you to see that there's some similarities drawn out that are supposed to kind of take our mind to. Adam, you could look back and say, okay, so here's Adam. He's alone, and he's just surrounded by unlimited food, and he's surrounded by peace and harmony. So the first Adam is, has unlimited food. The second Adam, what does he have? He has no food. He's surrounded by wild, Adam is surrounded by animals that are in harmony. Jesus is surrounded by wild beasts. And the thing that I want you to see is this, is, this is just throughout scriptures, you see the first Adam and Jesus, who's called the last Adam, you see these parallels that you cannot deny. I mean, whether it's Romans 5 or in 1 Corinthians, they're always trying to say, look at the similarities between our first Adam and the second Adam, or the last Adam. So uh, Romans 5, verse 14, we'll throw the verse up, and there's way more than this, I wish I could get into this, but of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come? So we just know this, we know that Adam is a type of Jesus, He's a picture of Jesus. He's pointing to Jesus. John is bringing up Jesus' life, and it helps, it makes our mind go back to the first Adam. And the way that this to me is so profound, this is, this is what Jesus came to do. Listen to this, if you would write this down. If Jesus were to reverse what Adam had done, he needed to enter into a world not as Adam has found it, but as Adam has left it. And please hear that. If Jesus were to reverse what Adam had done, Jesus could not enter into the world that Adam had found it. Adam found it in paradise and peace and harmony, but Jesus had to enter into the world as Adam had left it. So we have the garden, now we have the anti-garden. And we have Jesus stepping in to reverse everything that Adam has done. And I love this about the Gospels, and I love that you see these parallels. In Mark, we don't ever see wild beasts being thrown in Matthew or Luke's Gospel. Just so you know, Matthew, Mark, and Luke all talk about the temptation of Jesus. They all talk about it, but they go into much more detail. Mark just goes, he's with wild beasts and angels. And there's some parallels we'd see in a sense between the first garden and now this anti-garden in the wilderness. And Jesus came to do, undo everything that Adam had done. And I love this because in a sense, Satan had a grasp on this world and we see Jesus in a sense loosening his fingertips from this grasp on this world. We see that after the first garden, sin, disease, famine, environmental issues, like so many issues in every way. And then when Jesus steps on and the gospel of Mark is so profound, is Jesus is reversing all that. He calms the storm, he heals the sick, he heals the blind, he heals the demon-possessed. He's undoing everything Adam had done. And this is what Jesus came to do in the anti-garden. And there's another garden that we really see in the Gospels. And, and just so you know this, in the temptation between uh, Satan and Jesus, we notice that there's like kind of this break. 
it says in Luke chapter 4, I think verse 13, it says Satan's going to wait until an opportune time to tempt Jesus. He's waiting for another time. And then we see that time in the Garden of Gethsemane. Hours before Jesus is taken to be crucified, we see that temptation come again. And I want you to see this between our first Adam and our last Adam. God said to the first Adam, Adam, obey me about this tree and you will live. God said to the second Adam, Jesus, obey me about this tree and you will die. Adam did not obey God about the tree and he didn't live, so he died. And yet the harder thing that God said to Jesus, obey me about this tree and you will die, and he did. And he died so that you and I could live. You see, it was both about a tree. It's both about obedience about the tree to the tree. And what Adam failed to do, Jesus finished. See, what Adam failed to do in the beginning, Jesus came to re- redo. And I love this because when you're reading about the wilderness, it's taking your mind back to Adam and going, oh my gosh, this is the one who's undoing. Adam brought in the wilderness. Adam brought in the desert, and here's Jesus in the desert to undo everything he has done. Isn't that good news? Isn't the Bible connected in such a unique way that's like, let me just make this up and write this way. Isn't the Bible so good that God would do this in this way? And next I want to show this, and this is my next thought about this temptation. We'll throw it up here, but it's a spiritual reality. That sometimes I lose sight of this, that there is a spiritual reality. Let's not forget what's happening here. This is a very spiritual thing. He goes into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan, and he's hungry. He's there 40 days, and he's being tempted by Satan, and then there's the wild beast, and then there's, you know, the angels there to help minister to Jesus, and, and this is a very spiritual thing, and there's, there's, there's something for us in the church we do need to hear this, that there is a spiritual realm, and the spiritual realm does affect us, and we can't be naive to it, but we also can't be over, overbearing on it. I think there's like kind of two extremes, right? We either overemphasize spiritual things or we underemphasize. And I think either way, Satan's happy. I think either way, if you're like, if you're the person that overemphasizes, like, oh my gosh, this is a line at Publix, demons. They had no cheese, they had no cheese for my sub, demons. Like, no, that's an overemphasis. I think that might, that might please them in that sense. But then there's an underemphasis, right? And you can read some of, I love some of C.S. Lewis's writing on this between an older demon writing to a younger demon and he makes this stuff up. But he goes, the, the greatest thing I can do, the greatest thing you can do is to tell the human there's no such thing as us, that we don't exist. This is the greatest trick you could ever pull on man. And I think, that, I think the other side is if we're naive to it, that means we're losing. If we're not aware of it, we're losing. That's why Peter writes in 1 Peter 5, 8, be aware, be vigilant, vigilant for your adversary the devil is walking around like a roaring, roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. There's almost like this idea of please be aware. And I think that we've got to realize that this is not just a physical thing that's happening. There's not just people in seats. Sometimes I do wonder if God would just open our eyes to those spiritual things, what would be happening? And if you think of Daniel 10, I don't really get it. I really don't. All I know is when you read different scriptures, like Daniel chapter 10, there's a battle between t- an angel of God and an angel of Satan. And there's a battle going on, and all I know is that prayer released that angel of God. And you go, but why would God do that? Isn't God all sovereign? Can he do whatever he wants? Like, of course, but God wants us to engage in this battle by prayer and by releasing whatever. Like, God just wants us to engage. And there's a spiritual reality to this. And I think when you think of Jesus being tempted, again, Satan, Satan has never seen anything like this. He's never had an opportunity to go, God is in the flesh. What does that mean? Let me push him to his limits. Let me see what I can do in in him and and with him. And he's pushing him in that sense. And I want you to see this, though. The thing that I think you saw that I saw, verse 12, what does it say immediately? Who drove him into the wilderness? The Spirit. The Spirit drove Jesus into into the wilderness. Like, this incredible spiritual moment. Jesus gets baptized. It says the heavens are torn apart. God the Father speaks, and the Spirit's like, go to the wilderness. And if you're like me, you're thinking, but Jesus is already in the wilderness, right? He's already getting baptized in the wilderness, and the Spirit's like, go further into the wilderness. Go more. You think you're in the wilderness, they're going to go more into the wilderness. And I think there's so much said about this. And I, I do want to focus on this. After this great spiritual monumental moment, there's this low. And also, let me say this, it's God who led him there, so that's a good thing. 
Don't be afraid of the wilderness. We can't be like, oh no, the wilderness is bad. It's not bad. It might be exactly what the Lord has for you. You know, I think there's been so many moments in my spiritual life or in our spiritual lives where you have these spiritual highs, and then why is it that, like, right after that spiritual high, you have the spiritual low, you have the wilderness. Like, after the baptism of Jesus and the Holy Spirit descends and the Father's speaking, and he's like, go into the wilderness. Like, I would think, no, go start your ministry. Like, this is the perfect time. Like, everyone gets to, like, witness that. Like, go start. He's like, no, go to the wilderness. And honestly, I was praying about this for our church because for us, in a sense, last week, there's a lot of prayer, a lot of time, a lot of energy going into this day, and I'm going, okay, God, it's awesome, but do you want us to go into the wilderness? Like, what does that mean? What does that look like? And just for me, I've been trying to be more in prayer and be more aware of, like, what does that look like? And is the enemy going to try to sow, you know, seeds of discord? And what's the enemy going to try to do? Like, this is a new baby. This is like, like, when we first had Micah, and people are like, can I hold him? You're like, mm, you're sick, get away. And it's, I feel like this is the church, like this new little baby, and it's like, oh, can I hold it? You're like, no, you're probably, like, there's this idea of, like, what, what is the enemy going to try to do? And we got to be aware of this. Like, after a spiritual high, there's a lot of times the wilderness, but notice God led us there. God will lead you into the wilderness, but also Satan will be there to meet you in the wilderness. And we got to be really aware of that. And I, and I know that we talked about the wilderness last week, but know that the re- wilderness is a reoccurring theme in the Bible, and it's a reoccurring theme in our lives. It doesn't just go away. And so you're going to see the wilderness throughout the Old Testament, this idea of 40 you're going to see throughout the Old Testament. You're just going to see these things. We see just Jesus taking this on. You know, I think about this for me. So one of my highest moments in my spiritual life, uh, I got saved, I believe, around 16, like really got saved. <laughs> That's always confusing, right? But really, like, I'm like, I'm all in. And around like 18 years old, I remember, so oh, let's just be honest, after high school, you're like, what do I want to do with my life? What do I, like, my life was basketball, like I don't know what I want to do now. And so I started working at a gym, which is really f- ironic now because I just hate those places. But anyways, um, 18, doing that, and I remember it was like, I went to Oregon for a week, and I, I quit my job, I went to Oregon, I went with my buddy, we went to this church in Oregon, it's called Applegate Christian Fellowship, it's a beautiful, beautiful church, there's like a hill with like cottages, there's below the hill, there's this creek, and the creek runs into like a baptismal, like it turned into like a bap- baptism place, it's like an outdoor amphitheater, so the church, an outdoor amphitheater, and like hills with cottages, it's like gorgeous, so we went there for a week, no TVs, nothing, my phone didn't work, it's 2007 at that time, right, like social media, what? Like, n- none of that to be distracting. So my buddy and I go there, and um, weekly, every single day at this church, they had morning worship from 6.30 to 8. And so every morning, we just go to the morning worship from 6.30 to 8, and then go back to the mountain. And I remember, like, okay, I'm a, I'm, this is all real, and it sounds so fairy tale. but I remember we woke up one morning in Oregon. It wasn't supposed to, but it snowed. No idea it snowed that night. I opened the door, and, like, we're alone on this mountaintop. Me and my buddy have these, like, like there's no one there that week. We open the door, and it's snow. There's, like, there's deer prancing, like, outside my door. I swear. And I'm going... Oh my, am I in heaven? Like, did I die and wake up? Like, what, where am I? The coolest, like, moments spiritually happened there. Like, we were, we were just listening to worship music, reading our word. Like, God was just doing so much, just taking a lot of just filth and junk and just pouring out his goodness. Like, it was, it was such a good week, right? And I got back home, and it was so clear. It's like, I needed to go work at a church as a janitor. Like, I, it was so clear. This opportunity came up, and it's like, okay, I'm 18 years old. Everyone thinks you're crazy. Everyone thinks, what are you doing? It's like, I don't know. I don't know. I just know I need to go work at this church as a janitor, and I know I need to start some Bible studies with my friends, and that's all I knew. And it was, in a sense, very tough. It was, it was, it was very dry at times. I could go a whole day without seeing a human soul. And going from being like an outgoing person at a gym to going like, I'm not going to see a soul, and I'm going to clean toilets and vacuum and just cry while I listen to Bible studies, it was really weird. It was really hard. But it was so good. And I do believe the Spirit drove us there, but I also believe that Satan was there to tempt us. It was there to put subtle thoughts in your mind. And to kind of not do anything crazy, but just like subtle little things. Because next I want to talk about the idea of temptation. 
Like, just think about this. Like, it is a lot of times after spiritual highs. When you say, God, I give up. I surrender to you. I give you my everything. And then next week, but something falls in your life. Like, this has never happened before. This person never would have talked to me. This person never would have texted me. This, this never would have happened. But of course, it's the week after I confess everything's for you. Like, right? Like, after some spiritual high, you go, of course this happens. And I feel like God is using it as a test, and Satan is using it as a tempt. And God is trying to reveal something through the test, and Satan's also trying to hopefully, in his mind, reveal something or expose something through that tempt. And it's this temptation of Jesus that he's walking through, and, it, and it's so just similar to us in life. And I want to say this, because sometimes temptation gets like this really bad thought. Like, if I told you, like, I was tempted last night, like, ew, what happened? Like, you automatically think negative connotations. But temptation didn't necessarily always mean that. Here's one of the definitions I heard that I thought was the best. Temptation simply would mean to put to the test to see the good or evil in the person. To put to the test or to see the good or evil in the person. A lot of times, temptation is go, I, God's like, I, I'm allowing this. I'm not tempted because God doesn't tempt. He tests us. I'm allowing this to reveal what's in you. And Satan's like, well, I'm, allow- I'm doing this because I, I want you to fall in this. I want to reveal bad. And it's interesting what God might use for one motive, Satan might use the same thing for a, different comp- a completely different motive. And so this idea of temptation, it does plague all of us. If Jesus was tempted, will we not be tempted? And, we'll, and it's not something that we need to fear, be like temptations. Like th- this is something maybe God wants to use. And so this idea of temptation is happening. And it's happened in Jesus' life and it will happen in our lives. And it really is after a spiritual moment, when you get baptized or something great happens, and like here comes the wilderness. And Christians, I'm just saying, please be aware of that. Be aware of the enemy's strategies. Be aware of this. Be aware of how he tried to tempt Jesus. There's so many interesting things to just point out in this. And I want to I even say this because, again, I, I love, um, C.S. Lewis wrote a, a lot about temptation specifically. And maybe you've heard this quote. It's a very long quote, so bear with me. We'll put up the first part. But it's so powerful about the temptation of Jesus and our temptation. I'll read it here. You can read it there. Listen to this. Just don't miss this. So good. And don't try to write it down. Your hand's going to break. All right. (coughs) He writes, no man knows how bad he is till he has tried very hard to be good. A silly idea is current that good people do not know what temptation means. This is an obvious lie. Only those who try to resist temptation know how strong it is. (coughs) After all, you find out the strength of the German army by fighting it, not by giving in. You find out the strength of, a, of the wind by trying to walk against it, not by lying down. A man who gives into temptation after five minutes simply does not know what it would have been like an hour later. That is why bad people, in one sense, know very little about badness. They have lived a sheltered life by always giving in. We never find out the strength of the evil impulse inside us until we try to fight it. And Christ, because he was the only man who never yielded to temptation, is also the only man who knows to the full what temptation means. The only complete realist. Jesus really understands temptation greater than you and I ever have. Because he's been pushed to the extreme of temptation and yet not given in. Again, he's like, you, you, don't, you know the strength of the German army, not by giving in, but by fighting it. And by overcoming it. And you go, wow, they were strong. We beat them, but they were strong. And so someone who constantly gives in to temptation, they don't know what it's like. They've never had to give it to the fullest, give it to the max. He goes, in some ways, you know really little. It's funny because I think in the church even there was this idea, like it's still this idea that you can't really relate to someone until you've gone through or done what they have done. So there's almost this idea like when you grow up in the church, like, okay, well, I guess if I want to reach people, I guess I got to drink. I got to do these things with them. I got to try these drugs out with them. I got to experience all these things. I'm really going to relate to them. And really the point is if you gave in, you can't relate to them. 
there's an idea that you really don't understand it, the strength of it, until you kind of actually go, you know what, I actually was around that, and I was aware of that, and I was with them in that, but I never gave in to that. I actually understand what they're going through in, to a greater degree. I can relate to them in a greater degree because I know how strong it really is. There's, there's something that unique about temptation that God is saying, I'm trying to reveal what's in you, and Satan's like, I also want to reveal something in you. And it's two completely different things. You know, there, there's a, a quote, this guy, his name was literally C.T. Studd, and I just wish I had that name. His name is C.T. Studd. What a stud. Uh, he said this. I thought this was so powerful, an idea of temptation and kind of what we're talking about. Uh, he said, some want to live within the sound of church or chapel bell. I want to run a rescue shop within the yard of hell. Some people want to be around the church and church things. He's like, I don't want that. I want to be within a yard of hell. And do you not think if you're within a yard of hell, you're going to experience temptation? Do not think if you're around those things, it's going to be difficult at times. Of course it is. But we have someone, first of all, who overcame. We have someone who did conquer in the wilderness. And he's the one who's that advocate on our behalf. But also for us, it's an example that you and I can as well. That we can, by God's grace and through the power of Jesus, we can overcome as well. So in that idea of this, the anti-garden, everything Adam did, Jesus reversed. Everything Adam fell into, and it was, can I tell you this, is infinitely harder in the anti-garden than it was in the garden. When you're alone and when you're fasting and when you're tired, it's a lot, it's a lot harder. It's a lot harder to give in at that point than it is in the garden when everything's perfect around you. And Jesus did it with it so much harder. And so next I want to point out is this, the mission, the mission. Notice this, and here's what I want to point out. After he was baptized, he immediately goes to the wilderness. He didn't waste any time. He didn't go around it. He didn't go around the wilderness. I probably would have been like, that's cool, but I can also start my ministry. He didn't go around it. He went to it. He went through it. And I love that thought that Jesus goes, I know my mission. My mission is to defeat Satan. My mission is to conquer sin, hell, and death. Write down 1 John 3, 5 or 1 John 3, 8. The idea is this. Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. That was his mission, First John talks about. He that's why he came to destroy the works of the devil. So he goes, you know what, I'm baptized, I could begin my ministry, but I need to go to do this battle in the wilderness. I need to go into it. See, it wasn't about convenience, it was about convictions. And I'd say, please, let's hear that for our lives. It's not going to be about convenience always, it's going to be about convictions. It's not about like, oh, this is convenient to go around or to not experience. It is about our convictions that, no, this is why we're here. We are here to destroy Satan, hell, and death. The idea for us, even on the church, is for us, it's like we can't be comfortable here. I really do hope there's going to be times where you go, I don't want to, like, why do they want to do that? That's not, that's uncomfortable. Why do we want to go there? Why do we want to do this outreach locally? Why do they want me to personally share my faith? That's uncomfortable. It's like, good. Then you're starting to get it. That's the point. Where it's not about convenience. It is about convictions. See, I don't share the gospel because necessarily it, it's fun as much as it's true. There's a side, we've got we to understand that. There's a side where it's like there's a reality of people know, not knowing God, being separated to hell for all of eternity. There, there's a reality of that. Like, there's this burden to do that, to share the gospel. There's a burden to reach people because there's just that reality. I'm sharing this because for us as a church, we can't always be led by our conveniences. It's going to be by our convictions. And this is how Jesus was led. He's like, I need to go into the wilderness because I need, I, I, there's this battle waiting for me. And I, and I need to show that I can undo this. And the mission is so important, you guys. We cannot lose sight of the mission. We cannot lose sight of that you weren't just saved to sit there. And I wasn't just saved to sit there that we were saved so we can help reach others to save them in the name of Jesus. Like, we were saved to do something with that. It's not like, okay, now I'm saved. i wait for 60 years, maybe until I die, and then I'll be in heaven. It's like, no, no, that's not the point. Like, we were saved to something. Remember, we're saved to something else. And this is the mission. This is the focus. This is what he has. And here's what's so interesting to me. Because, again, with this idea, Matthew and Luke, they explain into detail what Jesus went through in the wilderness. Mark doesn't. But Matthew and Luke really go into depth that Satan's like, hey, turn those bread, turn the, uh, the stones into bread. Hey, just see all these kingdoms? If you bow down and worship me, I'll give you all this. 
hey, uh, why don't you just jump off from the temple and let everyone see that angels will come in and lift you up and you won't be hurt and they'll realize that you're in the side. And uh, it's really crazy. Those temptations weren't like, they were kind of subtle. They weren't like crazy in your face. And, and I really think that that is how the enemy's going to try to get us with subtle thoughts. Hey, like, hey, Jesus, you know you're God. You deserve bread. You deserve a lot more than bread. Come on, just turn some stones. Like, it's almost like, hey, Christians, you deserve more. You, know, you, you, you actually have a lot. Like, there's so much entitlement. I was almost like, hey, do you not notice that God's making you fast in the wilderness? Um, God's withholding good from you. And I feel like that's kind of what Satan always does. Uh, he, he shows you and I, don't you think God's withholding good from you? He did that with Adam and Eve in the garden. Hey, God knows that if you eat this, you'll be like him. He's withholding good from you. I think there's these subtle thoughts that he tries to put in our mind. Like, yeah, maybe that relationship is good. And it's like, no. Maybe that thing is good. It's like, no. Enemy tries to act like there's something better that God's withholding good from you. He's not withholding good. God is not going to withhold good. Every good and perfect gift comes from him. He's not going to withhold good. But there's these subtle thoughts, and I think that's what Satan was doing to Jesus in the wilderness. And again, he was led by his convictions, not the convenience of the bread, not the convenience of the kingdoms right away, because it had to happen upon death on the cross. It would have been more convenient in a sense to receive it. And that, there's this idea of like it's convenience, and Jesus, no, I have my convictions in this. And, and I want to say there has to be convictions as we're led. It's weird, okay? So it's hard to explain this. I'm, I've, I've tried telling people this in like small talk. It's very hard to explain, but there is the season in our life when Kim and I were leaving California. When we were called to move here, uh, we drove down here in January 2009. So we like, like last week was our nine-year anniversary here. And I remember we were in her parents' house. Our house is packed up, and we're in her parents' house the night before the drive. We're waking up like at 6 a.m. And I, it's weird. It's hard to like even describe it, but Kim was asleep. And I remember just the thoughts of what are we about to do? Like what are we doing here? Like, we're going to leave our family and friends in, in California to move to Florida. I'm like, it kind of like, and obviously we've already had those thoughts, but it just kind of hit. Like, why am I, why are we really doing this? And I can't describe it. It's like hard to describe it, but it, it was the most spiritual, one of the most spiritual nights because there was almost this anger towards Satan. It's almost like because of the fall of man, there's so many lost people and we need to go to Florida because we know we're called there to reach lost people. And that's like all we knew. It's almost like this anger, like, you jerk. I want to be with my family and my friends. Like, I want to experience, but like, there's almost like this, this anger, not towards God by any means. It's almost like, it's just, I can't believe like there's so, there's just this, there's this weird call that like we couldn't get away from. The prayer was just so weird. Like that time and that battle and like, just I was in tears thinking about like, I, with this mindset, like we were content never going back home. Like this is where God has called us. Like, it's almost just like we, we, we know, this is all we know is right there, is this in front of us. And it was so clear. It's almost like I'm, nothing can really persuade you because the conviction is so strong. It doesn't matter about convenience. And, and the, the point for us is really that. Like, s- there will be things that will make no sense that will not be convenient. It will actually be the opposite. But the convictions must lead us. The mission must lead us. That is so much more important than the convenience. And here's what's so interesting. If you look at the last two verses and just how it ends, it's really weird. We're going to talk about the kingdom. All right, the kingdom now. Look at verse 14. Now, after John was put in prison, Jesus came to Galilee, preached the gospel of the kingdom of God, saying, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel. All right, let's just stop here. It's really weird. Do you notice that it just ends with angels ministering to him? John, or Mark doesn't be like, and Jesus won, <laughs> or and Satan departed. It's kind of like, the way he ends, if you ever see a movie, there's like two battles, like fights going on, like the building comes crumbling on them. You're like, oh no, who won? Like a fist pops out. And you're like, yes, Jesus won. Like that's kind of what's happening here. It's kind of like, because what happens next is Jesus preaching. What happens next is he goes, the kingdom of God is here. So it's like, almost like who won? Like you're like, okay, the min- angels ministered to him. Now John's in prison, okay, who won? And it's like, and Jesus was preaching the gospel. Oh, Jesus won. And there's almost this like, what, what happened here? And this is so unique to me because he's talking now about the kingdom and the kingdom. And this is, so, this is so not New Testament. This is so not like we invented this as a church. This is so Old Testament. 
This is so something people were looking forward to for a long, long time. This is something people were longing for in their hearts. The kingdom of God was it's two parts. And I want you to like, hear this. The kingdom of God is really like a, a curtain closing and another curtain opening. The, the Jews in their mind had this hope that the idea of evil, oppression from government, from people themselves, rape, incest, murder, like this would close. This would come to an end. And not just that would close, but a new curtain would be open. That there would be harmony and peace and that God would rule from Zion or Jerusalem, that God would rule and reign. Like there's this new idea that, okay, the curtain's going to open to something much more glorious and better. And there was this expectation for the kingdom. I mean, you can't read Isaiah without, like, this longing for the kingdom. Like, where's the kingdom? When's the kingdom? How do we get the kingdom? And then Jesus, after this wilderness battle, goes, hey, the kingdom of God is near. It's at hand. And he starts preaching the gospel. And so he kind of introduces everything you've been looking for, Jews, is here. And this must have been incredibly confusing. Because they're going, where? I don't see it. Why are still things happening? And I, and I really want to like point this out. There's a disturbing paradox about the kingdom. There's this really disturbing paradox. Notice this. This is really weird. Verse 14. John's in prison. Okay, where'd that come from? Okay, like John's in prison. Okay. Do you ever read the Bible? And you're like, I don't, why did it do that? <laughs> you're like, don't do that. Don't, don't confuse me. It's like John's in prison. And then Jesus came out preaching. And I want you to think about this. The kingdom of God to them is everything glorious. And it, again, when you study the, the gospel of Mark, it's almost as if Satan has this tight grip and Jesus is just kind of loosening his fingers on the grip. Because if you think about it, it's like, wow, blind men are seen. Demons are being cast out. People are being healed. Oh my gosh, the kingdom's like, and they're starting to see the kingdom. And the gospel of Mark is kind of like this revelation of the kingdom. Like, oh, it's happening in Jesus. But yet at the very same time, and Mark will talk about it more later. Mark will talk about John being put in prison. And in much more detail, we'll go into that later. But he's like, at the very same time that all these great things are happening, there's also suffering. There's also good people going to prison. There's also the greatest among all men going to prison and being beheaded. What is that about? Because think about this, if you're, if you're Jew, even a Christian, going, wait, wait, the kingdom of God is at hand, and yet people that God loves and that are God's people are going to prison, and yet the kingdom of God is here? Like, no, that shouldn't, that shouldn't exist. It's a paradox. And the kingdom really is a paradox. And because the kingdom really speaks of the cross, which is the greatest paradox. The cross is this crazy paradox of through suffering and death comes victory. Through defeat we win. And Jesus is like, yes, this is the kingdom. The kingdom is going to be... People are still going to go to prison. People will still suffer. People will still go through it. But God is one. And through death and through loss comes great gain and great victory. And see, this is so unique for people going, this is, I've never heard of the kingdom this way. I've never seen the kingdom. The kingdom's supposed to be the wolf and the lamb, and Jesus is like, that will come. <laughs> the kingdom's supposed to be the child can play with the serpent. Like, what are that? Like, that will come. And there's this thought of, like, it's not yet, though. It, it's, it, people, and like, <laughs> guys who are smarter than me, call this the um, have come, not yet. Like, it's, it's come, but not yet. It's here, but it's not. It's like, like now and later, but it's like, it's now and it's later. Like, what? Like, no. Like, that doesn't, how does that work? And it is that paradox that it, it is at hand and it's near, but it's also later. And it's crazy when you study the Old Testament. I love, I love this about the Bible. It's so unique. In Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, it talks about how Jesus will come in riding on a donkey, right? And, every, and that happened, and people praise him as Hosanna. Like, it talks about the king coming on a donkey, and it says, and he will ru- rule from sea to sea. But the New Testament doesn't quote that part, because that's later. It quotes him coming on a donkey. Or for example, and this is, oh, I wish I had time. Go to Luke chapter 4. And if you remember, remember this part, and just I'll just explain it. Remember when Jesus is in the temple, and he pulls open the scroll? Remember that part? Jesus is in the temple, he pulls open the scroll, and he goes, hey, he reads the passage. He goes, the blind will see, the lame will walk, people in prison will be set free. And then he just sits down. And they're like, what does that mean? It's like, no, it's happening. And the craziest part, when you read what Jesus was reading in Isaiah 61, the, le- the next, very next verse was, and the day of vengeance of our God. Jesus did not read that. Why? 
Because in his first coming, he came to set the blind free, or set the captives free and, and heal the blind. He came to do all those things. But in the same prophecy about all these great things, there's also great vengeance and also great judgment. And Jesus is like, but that's not why I'm here right now. That will come. The day of vengeance of our God is part of that prophecy, and Jesus didn't read that part. There are certain things that Jesus came to fulfill in his first coming. There are certain things that will be filled in his, second, in his second coming. And there's the idea of this. The kingdom of God is at hand. What does that even mean? And, and here's the simplest way, guys. When it says the kingdom of God is at hand, the kingdom of God is at hand or it's near, or Jesus said it even it's here, basically is where the king is, the kingdom is. And that is so important to know. Where Jesus is, that's where the kingdom is. So where the king is, there, there's where they, like, so we go, oh my gosh, it's near. What does that mean? He's like, well, the king is here. It's near. It's at hand. It's here. I'm here. It's there. And the whole idea of the kingdom is we're praying, what are we praying for as Christians, God? Your will be done on earth as in heaven. Like, we're God, we're praying for your kingdom to come. That Christ would truly not just be king in, like, theory to us, but that he would rule and reign as king and lord. And that we would, in a sense, say, Lord, your will be done. That we'd start now, we'd start now as Christians saying, it's not our will, but God's will being done. Like, we're ushering in the kingdom. Like, we are trying to make way for the kingdom, saying, okay, we're trying to obey God's will now because it's going to come sooner or later. And there's this idea of us trying to usher in the kingdom with him, like preparing for the kingdom. So I love this idea of this paradox of the kingdom. John's in prison, but Jesus is like, hey, the gospel, it's here. The kingdom, it's here. Repent and believe. And I know I've shared this, but listen, when Jesus, and look at verse 15 again, because just so you see it. Or verse 14, Jesus came to Galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God. The way it's worded is like he's preaching the gospel of God. And then it says, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe. Jesus came to introduce something that no other religious person did. And that is, is an announcement that it's done. It's done. The gospel's here. The kingdom of God is at hand. Know this, that the gospel is good news. It is not good advice. And if you study any sort of religion, it's you should do this, you need to do this, it's advice. Religions are advice. Do these things. And then the gospel for Christians is completely different. It's, it's good news. It's It's done. That God has taken care of it. God has conquered. It's not advice on what to do. It is good news that it is done. And that is what is so unique about Christianity versus other religions. It's not God saying, you should do this, you should do this, make sure you do this. It's God saying, it's done. Good news. You know, again, I, I mentioned that last week a little bit, but there's an inscription that was to Caesar, uh, I think it was Caesar Augustus. It says, now here is the good news of Caesar Augustus. And that's like how it's worded, right? The, word, the idea of good news was not a Christian thing. It's like, here's the good news of someone else. And the, the John, Mark and all the gospel writers hijack it and go, here's the good news of Jesus. It's an announcement. Our king has come. Our king has been born. He rules and reigns. It is news. It is not advice. It's an announcement. And that is such good news. And then I love this. Repent and believe. Notice what that means. Repent. Turn from something. Believe. Turn to something. It's both. Repent from this. Turn from this and believe in this. And for some reason, repent gets a really bad rap. Like, we still do picture people in the street corners, like, repent. Like, we really get a bad rap of repentance. And, and, and one of the objections against Christianity, maybe you've heard this. Oh, you Christians, like, this is such a crutch for you to just get through life. And they, they describe it as a crutch. The problem is, like, why do you got to hate on crutches? Like, no one does that. Like, if someone's on crutches, you're not like, I can't believe you're on crutches, you weak fool. Like, don't hate on crutches. But I would say, it's not a crutch. It's a stretcher. It's like, carry me out. Like, I, this is not a crutch. Like, I completely need God. It is, it is worse than the way you think, actually. I need a stretcher in life. I need someone to carry me. And that is the idea that people get frustrated by this, but Jesus is like, hey, here's good news. It is done. That though you might lose, I have won. That though you might fail in the garden, Adam, I have won. I have conquered, I have redeemed. And this is the kingdom he's ushering in. And this, he's go and this is Jesus' first words. I love that. It's done. The time is fulfilled. It's happening. And he's ushering the kingdom. Repent, believe the gospel. 
And this is what it's left for you and me. This, this is the same message. Luckily, if you and I are hearing this right now, we're still hearing this in this context, you can still repent and believe the gospel. Praise God we're not in a different era right now if you're not a believer. Be thankful that you can say, I can still repent and believe before I don't have that time to repent and believe. This is a beautiful era to be in. You can still hear the message of Jesus and say, I'm going to turn from this. I'm going to believe in you. I'm going to turn to you. I'm turning from something. I'm turning to you. You see, here's what we are going to do for us. We're going to take communion, and we take communion because communion is a reminder of the kingdom. When Jesus was taking communion with his disciples, what did he do? He goes, hey, I'm not going to drink of the vine again until I'm with you in heaven. And so when we take communion, what it does, it goes, we're reminded that we will take this one day with Jesus in heaven, that we are saying, God, your kingdom come. We want you to rule. This is yours. This, all of the earth is yours. Everything in it is yours. And so I'm sharing this with us because, let's, guys, let's remember the kingdom. Let's remember the fact that everything Adam has lost, Jesus has refound and discovered and made new. And as we take that bread and as we take that cup, we are reminded of the kingdom. That this is not just for our little church. This is going to be for every believer, every person around. That we are joining, we're being united with the body of Christ, with those in Asia and Africa and Latin America. Like we're united by this idea of the kingdom. That we are longing for the day we can actually take this cup and drink, and drink from that cup and eat the bread with Jesus in heaven. We are just, when I take that, I go, Lord, I'm looking forward to this day I can do this with you. And that is what this time is. It's not just some sad thing. It is a wonderful thing to remember the kingdom. That God is coming. That God has come. It has been and not yet. One curtain's closing while another curtain's about to open. And that's what we're looking forward to. And so when we talk about suffering or trials, we look to Jesus because Jesus did it. And guys, let me just, in, in, just encourage you with this. We're not going to talk, in tr- I never want to inspire you when it comes to trials. Like, I never want to just say some cliche statement. You're like, oh, that inspired me today. I want to strengthen you for a lifetime. I want to say trials are real, the wilderness is real, but the Spirit led you there, and Satan's going to meet you, but Jesus overcame, and you can overcome too. And that is so much better than like, hey, there's something, I don't know, I'll just say some cliche thing, but it's so much better than that. We have strength for a lifetime because of what Jesus Christ has done, amen? So here's what we're going to do. We're going to pass out communion. We're going to worship, and I'm going to ask this. I'm going to ask that you guys would just take it at your seat alone, and I'm going to ask that you just spend some time praying and talking to God. And if you're not a believer in the passing communion, just, pa- just you can let the, the tray pass in front of you. That's totally fine. Why, why take communion if you don't believe in Jesus? Why remember something you don't even want to remember? But if you hear this today and you go, man, I do want Jesus and I do want to be part of this and I do believe in the kingdom, take it. Pray over it. Talk to Jesus. Say thank you that you gave your blood so that I could, be, <laughs> so that I could live. Thank you that you gave your body that was broken for me. Like, thank him. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to pray right now. We're going to worship a little bit. Once you get communion on your own, pray over it. Take it when you feel ready. I'm going to come back up here and I'm going to close this out in prayer. All right? Father, we just thank you. We thank you so much, again, for the kingdom, that it is fulfilled, that everything that we were looking for, that that the Jews were looking for, that Jesus, you have come and fulfilled, and you will fulfill. And so, Lord, as we take this bread, and as we drink from this cup, we remember you, Jesus. We remember that you've established a new kingdom, that, God, that you will rule and reign, And we're just thankful that we get to join in with other believers all over the globe who do this to pray. We ask, we do pray with them that your kingdom would come, that your will would be done. Hear God on earth in South Florida as it is in heaven. That Jesus, we can just enjoy you. We thank you so much for what happened in the wilderness that day. We thank you for what you endured so we could be brought close. And Jesus, we thank you for the gospel, that it is wonderful, it is a wonderful announcement that God, you have fulfilled it. You have done it. So we just want to praise you now and thank you now in your wonderful name, Jesus. Amen.